From the banks of the Colorado River in Lake Mead to the homes and businesses in Southern Nevada, welcome to Water Smarts, the podcast pumping from the heart of Las Vegas, where we engage with the experts who keep the water flowing throughout Southern Nevada. I'm Bronson Mack. And I'm Crystal Zelke. From how we treat it, deliver it, use it, protect it, and conserve it, the Water Smarts podcast is all about water in Southern Nevada. We hope to make you a little smarter about the one thing that keeps us all connected, water. Hey, Crystal, how are you today? I'm good, Bronson. Although I have to admit something here today. I realized after listening to our last couple of podcasts that we recorded that I was chronically complaining about how hot it's been this summer, which it's always hot in (laughs) Vegas, but like seriously hot this summer. One thing, though, I failed to mention is that we've been having an amazing monsoon season. Yeah, we have. You're absolutely right. They've been hitting on the weekends, too, which I kind of appreciate because sometimes I'm in the office and my head's down and I have no idea, no sense of what the weather is outside. And I've missed a lot of really good rain events. So I've been appreciative of the fact that some of these monsoons have hit over the weekend. Actually, one thing that's kind of interesting about that is with one of these weekend monsoons, we were pretty successful in getting the word out to the community, asking them to turn off their irrigation clocks. And as a result of the community's response, people actually turning off the irrigation clock, we saw a single day, it was a Monday, we saw a single day water savings of about 65 million gallons of water. That's water that water utilities here in Southern Nevada had anticipated delivering on Monday. But because of the monsoon the weekend before, people turning off that irrigation system, it reduced the demand on our drinking water supply. So that's water that didn't have to be delivered, which is obviously a great thing. That's water savings that we get. One other thing that we also hear about, Crystal, I think you do too, when we get those monsoons is whether or not there's any direct benefit to Lake Mead. When we get that kind of a, of a rain event, it really doesn't have a huge impact on the water level in Lake Mead. You have to keep in mind that Lake Mead, well, when it's full, it's about 250 square miles. So it's a huge body of water. And when we get those rain events, any of that water that makes it back into the lake benefits that lake level to the tune of maybe less than hundredths of an inch <laughs> in lake level. But again, when we can all turn off our irrigation clock, that's what has the biggest benefit on our water supply and that water savings. Yeah, I was going to say, I get that question a lot from people. It, does the rain really help us or do anything? Well, it's great for our landscapes and it helps us conserve here at home because we can turn off our irrigation. But in the big picture, like you said, it's not going to make a huge difference for Lake Mead. And as we look at Lake Mead and we've seen these lake levels declining over the past 20 years, we are now at the point where the federal government of the United States has actually declared a water shortage. And today, to discuss the Colorado River shortages and what it means for Southern Nevada, we have with us Colby Pellegrino, Deputy General Manager of Resources for the Southern Nevada Water Authority. Colby, welcome back to the Water Smarts Podcast. Hi, Bronson. Thanks for having me back. Kobe, the Bureau of Reclamation just recently announced the first ever federally declared shortage on the Colorado River. That's going to take effect next year at the beginning of 2022. Now, I know for you and for the Southern Nevada Water Authority, it's not a surprise. You've been preparing for this for a couple of decades now. Can you provide our listeners just a little bit more background on the drought and give us some context around SNWA's efforts to prepare for this shortage declaration? Sure. And it's a great way to start the conversation about drought is to talk about where we get our water from. 
Over 90% of the water that we serve to our customers comes from Lake Mead. Uh, the remaining 10% is coming here from local groundwater. So the condition of the Colorado River is vitally important for Nevada. I think the other thing that's important to remember when we talk about the Colorado River is Nevada only has 1.8% of the allocated water on the river. So it's really important that we work together as a basin. No matter how hard Nevada tries, we can't change the river by ourselves. And that's why these cooperative agreements, the drought contingency plan and shortage guidelines that we're going to talk about later are so important. But let me shift back to the drought for a minute and talk about the significance of the drought that the Colorado River Basin has been facing. So starting in about 2000, the reservoirs were full, and that was actually a pretty decent water year, 1999. Coming into the year 2000, we started to see below average runoff into the reservoir. And then 2002 was a really kind of a gut punch. It was one of the driest years on record and really accelerated the decline of Lake Powell and was really when people started acknowledging that what is now a 21-year drought was the beginning of a serious drought. This is the most severe drought in Colorado River recorded history. So since we've been taking records of gauge flows on the River since 1906. This is the driest 21-year period that exists. Within this 21-year period is the driest 10-year period that exists, the driest two-year period that exists. All sorts of records being broken as far as how dry the system can get. We're at the point now where the lake has dropped 130 feet and we are in this first ever shortage declaration. But just because this is the first time shortage is declared doesn't mean that our planning started yesterday. We have been producing a 50-year water resource plan every single year to look at the most recent information about how the population may change, how our water resources will be used, what conservation looks like, and Colorado River conditions to make sure we can meet the future needs of the community. In the beginning of this drought, we introduced some of the most aggressive water conservation policy in the nation. We did a huge education program that still exists today, and we implemented some of our hallmark programs that we're still using today, like Cash for Grass, to incentivize things to come out of the valley that are those more wasteful uses of water. We also started banking water about that time. And because of that, we have water today stored here locally in our groundwater aquifer with our partners in Arizona, with our partners in California and in Lake Mead. And we've amassed enough water that it actually makes up for about eight years of the water that we're using today from the Colorado River. Now, obviously, we wouldn't take all of that water in a single year. But that water is there to provide a buffer against these sorts of shortages when and if we need to bring them online. Another track of this being prepared for drought involves looking at our infrastructure that's in Lake Mead. We're the only large water user in the lower basin, California, Arizona, and Nevada that draws their water directly out of Lake Mead. Lake Mead is the one of all the reservoirs that really does go up and down in the lower basin responding to drought. So we started looking 20 years ago at the projections for how Lake Mead could go down. And at the time, we had infrastructure in Lake Mead to draw water only down to elevation 1,000. 
we put in a new intake and a new intake pump station that actually allow us to draw water from Lake Mead, even if it drops so low that water cannot be released from Hoover Dam to all those users downstream in Arizona, California, and Mexico. Making that investment unlocked a tremendous amount of opportunity for us to increase our water resource options through partnerships because since we can continue to rely on Lake Mead at all water levels, we're able to bridge into partnerships where we can exchange water on the Colorado River, such as our partnership that we're exploring with the Metropolitan Water District where we're looking at investing in some reuse projects they're doing in exchange for some of their Colorado River water. Another thing that we've done just recently, we encouraged through the legislative process, the adoption of Assembly Bill 356, which was signed into law this summer. And that bill prohibits non-single family residential users from using Colorado River water to irrigate non-functional turf after 2026. And we continue to look for additional opportunities to protect our water supply, to take proactive actions on the river to help protect Lake Mead's elevation, and of course, to continue innovating in the conservation realm. So as I'm listening to you tick off all the things that the SNWA has done, it's clear that we've done a lot to protect our water supply, particularly through infrastructure investments and conservation programs. Despite all of these efforts, though, we're in shortage now because the lake has dropped below a surface elevation of 1,075 feet. How will shortage impact the average resident, Colby, or business owner here in the Las Vegas Valley? Well, initially, individuals won't see personal impacts related to the drought. Our conservation efforts were designed to get us prepared for this ahead of time. So when we talk about the reductions that Nevada has to take, they're from our allocation of water and we're not using our full allocation of water today. So I'll add some numbers to that for you to help put that into context. Nevada gets 300,000 acre feet of Colorado River water each year. Under this first level of shortage, we have to reduce our take of Colorado River water by 21,000 acre feet below our allocation. So that means we drop from a supply availability of 300,000 acre feet down to 279,000 acre feet. 2020, in context, we used 256,000 acre feet of Colorado River water. So we're using less today than we're going to be shorted this year. So there is not an immediate impact. However, our water use has been increasing pretty steadily for the last several years. So we need to continue to use the tools that we know work to conserve. And that requires people taking actions every single day to help conserve water. The first and probably most important thing that any person or business can do is follow that seasonal watering schedule change your clock in fall and winter to be watering less days a week. That's the number one place we can change water. It doesn't hurt you at all. And it saves a lot of water. The second is rip out that turf that you're not using. And the third is report water waste. A lot of times people don't even know they're wasting water. Their sprinklers run when they're at work or at night. Most people correct those violations before we have to find them. So those are all things that people can do every single day to help us ensure that future shortages don't have an impact. 
And that's important because the long-term projections and forecasts are not particularly rosy either. I talked about earlier how the reservoirs were full. And now we're at a point where the reservoirs have a lot less water in them. So it's not going to take one or two average years to get the reservoirs full again. It would take multiple successive years of average or quite a few years in a row of even really wet years to refill the reservoirs. So at this point, we need to be prepared that every single year from here forward for the foreseeable future is likely to be a shortage year. We may get lucky and bounce out of that, but the probabilities of remaining in shortage for the next five years remain above 90% in every single year. So we're at the point where we really need to take this conservation stuff seriously, not just here locally, but every single person that's using Colorado River water, whether you live in LA, Phoenix, Tucson, Denver, uh, we should all continue to look at ways that we can conserve water. Less water in Lake Mead means deeper shortages. So as Lake Mead's water level declines, the amount of reductions we take increase. So that means if lake levels continue to go down, we are going to have to impress conservation upon the community even more. Climate change and drought are not going away. And we know that besides impacting the Colorado River and our primary source of supply, they're also going to cause people to increase use. Hotter days means our landscape and our evaporative cooling use more water. So we have to be continuing to make conservation savings to be able to adapt what the future holds in terms of the hot, dry weather that we're going to face. A warmer and drier future here in Southern Nevada and really for everybody in the Colorado River Basin. Colby, Southern Nevada isn't the only water user on the Colorado River that is going to see its water supply reduced now that we are in a shortage condition. Arizona is going to see its allocation reduced by more than 500,000 acre feet. I mean, that is a considerable cut that Arizona has to manage. And based on what you said, it sounds like we might even get to that next level of shortage pretty quickly. Um, You talked a little bit about the first level of shortage. That's the 21,000 acre foot cut that we have to take. Talk about that next level. What's the potential that we hit that tier two section? So there is a possibility that we actually go into a tier two shortage in 2023. And what would trigger a tier two shortage is Lake Mead being below elevation 1050 in the 24-month study projections for the start of 2023. That tier two shortage causes an increase in our reduction of our allocation by 4,000 acre feet per year. So instead of the 21,000 acre feet that we're dealing with this year, we have to be using 25,000 acre feet less in 2023. That's a significant amount of water. That's 8 billion gallons of water less. As the lake continues to go down, if we get down to elevation 1045, there's another increase in our reductions. And then if we drop below elevation 1025, there's even additional increases in our reductions. And we actually have to negotiate with our Colorado River partners on what the future looks like should the lake continue to decline. It's important to remember things can go pretty quick from here. The lake is uh, V-shaped and we actually joke that it's more shaped like a martini glass, that the amount of water it takes to drop one foot 
decreases as elevations drop. So you're pulling out a lesser volume of water and dropping more feet in Lake Mead. We know that Lake Mead is likely to continue to go down. And we hope that some of these proactive actions we're taking with our partners can help slow that decline. But climate change is showing us, in addition to just the impacts that we expect to see today, that there's going to be less precipitation coming into the Colorado River Basin. What's happening in the Rockies? The snow is melting off sooner. That means the natural system up there is using more water. The atmosphere being warmer means it's sucking up more of that water and it's evaporating more of that water. So the drought and climate change don't only pack this punch on water supply, but there's kind of multiple sides that we're taking jabs from here. We expect that to continue. And that's why we really, really need to, again, I sound like a broken record, but focus on the way that we can use water wisely. We need to buckle down and really we need to continue to be a leader in that. A leader nationally, we certainly are. A leader in the Colorado River Basin, we certainly are. And we need to continue that because we can't change the course of the Colorado River on our own. And if we're going to ask the other people that we share the Colorado River with to do really hard things, we need to be able to show them that we've done that here first. We've done a really good job of that, but we need to continue doing that same level of innovation and conservation. So let me just ask a follow-up on that. You talked about it getting warmer and drier in the Colorado River Basin. Are the projections for the river that it's just going to be less water, less water, less water year over year over year? Or are there other projections out there? I mean, are they showing that there might be some wet years too? Uh, what, What can we kind of expect from that? Yeah, that's a great question, Bronson. So obviously, in any of these climate models, most of them show that the Colorado River will be hotter and drier. They disagree a lot on the magnitude of what that dryness could look like. So kind of the best available science for the Colorado River shows that we are going to continue to be drier on average. That doesn't mean we're not going to see wet years. We will. They may be fewer and further between. We expect things to be more erratic than we've seen in the past, where you may get a really wet year, wetter than we've seen before. And you may get drier years, way drier than we've seen before. And we kind of have to be prepared for both ends of that spectrum. But on average, the inflow to the basin is expected to decrease throughout time. If you want me to put some numbers to that, I will. So the Colorado River Compact allocated 15 and a half million acre feet of water to the seven basin states. Later, we gave a million and a half acre feet to Mexico. And the system has about a million acre feet that's not accounted for in those other two numbers. So that's about 17 and a half million acre feet that could potentially be used from the river each year. We're not using that much today. We're using more in the range of 14 million acre feet. But this current drought is 12.3 million acre feet of water. That's how much it's produced. The long-term average of the river is 14.9 million acre feet of use. And some of these climate change projections are suggesting we need to figure out how to deal with maybe 11 million acre feet on a long-term average. So something that's even drier than this current drought. 
that's the next step of what we're working on with our Colorado River partners. We're in the process of renegotiating the guidelines that define these shortages, taking in this best available climate change data and saying, as a basin, what do these shortages and policy need to look like so that we continue to be resilient against this type of drought and drier future that we expect to see? So when I tell people I work for the Water Authority, I get a lot of questions about water in general. I'm sure both of you do too. And it's usually an opportunity for me to explain a few things about how it works in our Colorado River allocation. A lot of questions that I get are based on why don't we just take what we want from Lake Mead? It seems to be ours. It's in our backyard. Or why don't we renegotiate the Colorado River Compact and demand more water for Southern Nevada? Can we do that, Colby? That's a question that I receive a lot too from my friends and neighbors and probably one of the most common questions when I speak to the public at large anywhere about the Colorado River, which is why doesn't Nevada just go back and get more? And that's sort of a two-part story. The Colorado River Compact was created in the 1920s. And at that time, there really wasn't anything in Nevada. We were a stop on the old Spanish Trail. We were fully reliant upon groundwater. There's some truth to the fact that they gave Nevada water just so they wouldn't have to reopen the compact later if we said we wanted some. (laughs) But there's also lore that our negotiator was drunk. I'll let you decide which one (laughs) you want to go with. But the way compacts work, these are part of the Constitution set up how interstate compacts work. What that compact clause in the Constitution says is we can create a compact through agreement of state governments, state governors, and the federal government. For us to go in and modify this compact that addresses the Colorado River, we have to get seven state legislators to approve it. We have to get seven governors to approve it. We have to get Congress to approve it, the Senate, and the president. And as I mentioned, everyone has to use less water in order for us to be durable against these projections of future inflow. So what we would essentially be doing is asking all of those people to open up the agreements that we've relied upon for over a century to give us more water and all of them less. Now, I'm not a betting person, but I've grown up in Nevada and I'm not going to take that bet. I don't think there's any amount of lipstick we can put on that pig that gets other folks to come in and say, yes, you Nevada get more while everyone else needs to take less. And that's why our partnerships with the neighboring states are so important. I think the other thing to remember about the law of the river, because I get that same question you talked about too, Lake Mead is in our backyard. Why don't we just decide what to do with it? The Colorado River, the use of its water, the releases from these reservoirs, Lake Mead, Lake Mojave, Lake Havasu, those are all controlled by the Bureau of Reclamation and they act as what's known as the water master of the lower Colorado River. And they get to make these determinations of who gets water and when they get it. They are the ones that release water from the dam downstream. The reality is though, even though the federal government controls things and even though we have this compact, we really can't go back and change, we have been successful in partnering with the other users on the Colorado River and the other states in making policy and in making investments in the river and our water supply. And we'll continue to do that. These guidelines that we have today are pretty special in that the seven states came together 
realizing that we were going to have to take shortages on the Colorado River and said, we would much rather agree to something where we know what volumes our shortages are and when they're occurring than for us to fight it out for every last drop in court. And I think that that has proven to be an example, not only here in the United States, but elsewhere in the world, that a water manager, what I what helps me sleep at night is I know what's coming. I can project when it's going to be here and we can use that to help our community adapt. And everyone on the river sees that value in predictability. That's what this next set of river negotiations is going to continue to try and do is to come up with how much do we need to do and when do we need to do it so we have that certainty. But what these agreements also did is they created opportunity. When we sat here before we negotiated the current policy, we couldn't store water in Lake Mead. Today, we have almost a million acre feet of water stored in Lake Mead for our future use. And that's helping Lake Mead's water levels and is providing a water supply opportunity to this community that we did not have before. The other thing that we've done is we've partnered with other municipalities on the Colorado River to look at water supply projects. We've done that for projects that create future supply for us. We operated the Yuma Desalting Plant together. We've invested in projects in Mexico that get us temporary water supplies. We built a reservoir in California that captures water that was leaving the country in excess of our requirements in exchange for some of that water coming back to us. And we have more projects like that in the future. So even though that compact is pretty inflexible, we have been able to create policy that is very beneficial to us here locally and to the river as an entire community. Thanks for breaking that down and explaining it all because it sounds a lot like my life at home when I can't get my kids to share. And what do we end up doing? We end up talking through it and making agreements and negotiating so that nobody walks away all upset and everybody's happy in the end. So that makes sense. Colby, you mentioned conservation several times and stressed how important that is. Tell us why conservation is actually one of our most important tools and what the Water Authority is doing to increase conservation efforts here in Southern Nevada. Conservation has really been a part of the ethic of our community for the last 20 years. And it's as simple as we live in a desert. We need to remember that. We need to act like that. When people move to this community from all around the country or the world, a lot of them tend to bring the landscape that they're used to. And as Las Vegas was really blossoming in the 70s or 80s, we saw these huge lots filled with grass that really does not make a lot of sense here. Places that really make sense to have lots of turf are places where Mother Nature is irrigating it. And that's just not what we have here in Southern Nevada. We've been really successful in educating the community on that. And part of that education was really just showing people that there is beautiful desert landscaping. And there's some fabulous examples when you drive through the community. And I can think of dozens of examples, you know, these intricate things where there's different sized rocks and cacti and beautiful desert flowers that I would take any day over just that plain green carpet. But that was sort of the beginning. And we had a lot of low-hanging fruit over the last 20 years. We made some really good progress. We did really good turf conversions, but we're kind of not really in the realm of low-hanging fruit anymore. It's getting a little harder to get people to take out their turf. 
the people who want to comply with the watering schedule are doing a really good job of it. But we've got to get to the people who don't know about it. And for those of you that live here know there's people moving all the time and moving in and out. So somebody from another community may not be familiar with our watering schedule. So we're sort of constantly educating on these different things that need to happen in order to live responsibly here in the desert. So the programs we have today that have been really effective for us in water conservation, a lot of people should be familiar with, and that's things like paying people to remove turf, our water efficient technology program where we pay businesses to do water conservation activities, tiered water rates, so people that are using more water pay more. And those pricing signals are really effective as well for helping conserve water. But we also have new things coming online. I mentioned AB 356 a little bit earlier, where we have this mandate to get some of this turf out, and that's one push. But we also have some new horizons that are pretty exciting to talk about. One is a septic conversion program. There's about 14,000 septic systems throughout the county. And by converting those septic systems, we take water that's just sitting in the local groundwater and we move it into the Colorado River. That's a benefit to us, particularly because a lot of those people are using Colorado River water and we're not getting that same return flow credit benefit that we get from everyone that's connected to the sewer. We're also providing an artificial turf incentive for the first time. Our government entities that are putting in these large-scale sports parks can have some help if they want to put an artificial turf up front instead of living turf. We have a large water user policy where for the first time we're really taking a look at as new economic investments are made in the community, making sure they are water responsible. Evaporative cooling is one of my favorite. I think we consider that to be our second largest consumptive use of water. And we don't know a lot about it other than there are some technologies out there that are better than evaporative cooling. So we're getting ready to do a push on evaporative cooling that's just like what we've done on landscaping. Let's find out what the other technologies are. Let's show that they work. Let's see the places that this never should have been to begin with. And let's come up with the incentive programs to help people adapt. So lots of really fun and exciting stuff coming in terms of future programs. And those are the kind of things that we'll continue to do to stay ahead of this. Wow, really interesting to hear a little bit on that evaporative cooling component as well as the septic conversions. I mean, you're really talking about maximizing the use of the water that we have efficiency in the evaporative cooling space. And then with these septic conversions, obviously that wastewater sitting in somebody's septic system isn't doing anybody any good. If we can get that connected to the municipal wastewater collection system, that water can be reclaimed and recycled back to Lake Mead. We can get credit for that. Outstanding stuff there. One other thing that's just kind of interesting, Colby, you know, people a lot of times don't really think about this. If it's growing outside in Southern Nevada, it's being irrigated and it's being irrigated by our drinking water that we are pulling from Lake Mead. And so this is why we are really focusing our conservation efforts, a big chunk of our conservation efforts on outdoor water use with our seasonal watering restrictions, our turf conversion program and water waste. Kobe, would you say that those are probably the three most important things right now that Southern Nevadans can do to, to save water? Absolutely. Colby, we have a couple of questions that we want to ask you from some of our listeners before we let you go. Are you game to play? I am. All right. Let's start with our first question here. 
Oh, yeah. And this goes back to uh, to the shortage declaration that we just heard about and that we're in right now. This comes from Scott. And Scott asks us, what exactly will happen if Lake Mead drops below the federal emergency level? In other words, he is asking, what happens if Lake Mead continues to decline even further? Like, what are the next steps now that we've all taken shortages? Great question. So as Lake Mead goes down, our shortages increase. Once we project that Lake Mead might drop below elevation 1030, which is actually above our greatest shortage reduction. So our greatest shortage reduction comes if Lake Mead drops below 1025. If we see that Lake Mead might drop below 1030, we have a requirement to get back together with the Bureau of Reclamation and the other states and talk about what more we need to do because we don't want to see the reservoir continue to decline at that point. So there may be some hard decisions to make, but there is a line in the sand there that we need to come back together because we know we need to describe in more detail what we need to do at that point. Well, excellent. I'm glad to hear that there's some additional action that gets taken should Lake Mead continue to decline. We got another question. This one comes from Amy. She is a boater. She goes out to Lake Mojave and Lake Havasu, and she notices that the lake levels are pretty consistent out there. So, Colby, can you answer this question? Why are we seeing lake levels in Mead decline, yet Lake Mojave and Lake Havasu continue to maintain pretty consistent water levels? The short answer there is Lake Mead is a storage reservoir. Its primary purpose actually was put in for flood control because the river was really flashy and these floods would wipe out the irrigation canals downstream. But it was built as large as it is to be a storage reservoir and to capture the wet years and draw down in the dry years. Lake Mojave and Lake Havasu downstream are actually what are known as regulating reservoirs. And so they're really there to smooth out the flows in the river so that the water users downstream are not trying to draw water off the river while it's moving up and down rapidly throughout the day. So they provide that sort of smoothing of the water flow. They do have some seasonal adjustments where they do go up and down a little bit. Lake Mojave, for example, is used for razorback sucker rearing, which is an endangered species. So they drop Lake Mojave down in order to allow those eggs to hatch. But otherwise, it doesn't see those inflow changes that Lake Mead does because it's purely moving through the water that's going to water users downstream. I think the other thing to remember, because coupled with that question you got, sometimes I hear uh, Lake Mead is dropping, but there is no drought because Lake Mojave is not dropping or Lake Havasu is not dropping. There's an order of magnitude difference combined Lake Mojave and Lake Havasu are less than 10% of the storage capacity of Lake Mead. And when you just wander on either of those reservoirs from the shore, it's kind of hard to see that because they're pretty impressive when you're at the shoreline looking out, but there really is a huge difference in the amount of water that those reservoirs store compared to Lake Mead. Great information, water flowing out of Lake Mead, meeting downstream water demands in California, Arizona, and Mexico. That water passes through Lake Mojave and Lake Havasu, generating power, supporting those Razorback suckers, and ultimately meeting those downstream water demands. Colby, great information today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Water Smarts podcast, helping our audience understand a little bit about these shortage conditions we are in, and of course continuing to emphasize the importance of water conservation. Colby, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you, Bronson and Crystal. This is a great time for all of our listeners to think about getting out there, checking your watering clock and changing it for fall restrictions. And I hope you guys take care. The Water Smarts podcast is brought to you by the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which reminds you to follow the mandatory seasonal watering restrictions. You can find your assigned watering days on snwa.com. You also can find landscape tips and rebate coupons to help you save water and save money. One of those rebates is the Water Smart Landscapes rebate, which pays property owners up to $3 a square foot to remove useless grass and replace it with drip irrigated Water Smart Landscaping. As we heard from Colby, taking out our community's water thirsty grass and replacing it with Water Smart Drip Irrigated Landscaping saves water and protects our long term water resources. You can apply for the landscape rebate at snwa.com. The website also has tips and tools to help you plan your landscape upgrade. You can find desert-adapted plants and learn about their care needs and create a shopping list with the plant search tool. You also can find sample landscape designs to inspire you. The rebate is available to business owners too. Just visit snwa.com for more details. It's always nice to have Colby on our podcast. She's a plethora of information. And you know what? I just learned something new every time we do this. For instance, today I learned about how we manage or the Bureau of Reclamation manages the river for the razorback suckerfish. Such a yeah, cool thing. Pretty crazy, right? The razorback sucker. I mean, she talked a little bit about that down in Lake Mojave. I believe the sucker, the razorback sucker, is also up through the Grand Canyon. Obviously, the ecological significance and sensitivities associated with the Colorado River. You think about how that has to be balanced and managed in relation and conjunction to the power production that occurs on the river and the water use that occurs on the river. I mean, it really is kind of a balancing act that the seven states and the Bureau of Reclamation have to maintain in order to ensure fish species, bird species, power production, and water deliveries to agricultural and urban water users. Pretty amazing when you think about all of the things that depend upon the Colorado River, from the fish to the birds to the power production to the agriculture to the urban environments. The Colorado River, it does it all. America's hardest working river. Well, that's it for this episode of Water Smarts. We hope you subscribe and listen next time. You know, Crystal, the kids say that you're supposed to smash that subscribe button. So we want all of you out there to smash that subscribe button. Hey, and if you got a question for us about water, about the Colorado River, about these shortages and what we are about to continue to experience here and having less water available to us, you can send those questions to us at watersmarts at snwa.com or go to our contact page on snwa.com. We'll answer you back. And if your question's good enough, you might hear it on the pod. We'll see you next time here on Water Smarts.